um, let me pray for us while Rachel gets that video going, and then we'll jump into it. Father, we just love you. We celebrate you. We thank you for all that you did on the cross. We thank you for all of the planning that went into you coming to the earth to save our sins. We thank you for all the ways throughout the scriptures that you prepared your people to know that you are the one coming to save their sins. Um, and we just, we celebrate you today. God, I'm asking that today the word would go through into people's hearts. It would encourage people and we would be able to worship you in a fresh and a new way as a result of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. All right. So, um, before we dig too deep into it, what we want to talk about is why do we need a blood sacrifice, okay? So why was a blood sacrifice so important throughout the Old Testament and through the New Testament? So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. And what this scripture says is that before the foundation of the world... God chose you. So it says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption uh, to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and with his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Amen? So he picked you before the world was even created. He said, that person, I want to adopt them as my child. I want them in my family. So that's huge. That's incredible. But along with that, the Bible also says that, therefore, also, before the foundation of the world, Jesus was slain for your sins. So Revelations 13, 8, it says that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Why was that? Because God was set and determined to have you to become sons and daughters, and he knew that sin would come and separate us from God, and he had to reconnect us. But the penalty of sin was death. What does that mean that he... Um, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Was, was there a crucifixion before the world was even created? No, the Lord spoke to Jesus and he laid out his plan and there was an agreement in heaven before the world was even created that Jesus would come to the earth to pay for all of our sins so that we could be connected with God once again. And so then as you continue that story, you begin to see Adam and Eve and it's paradise, it's perfect communion, it's everything that, that should be, but then they disobey and so they were supposed to die, but God covered over their sins and this is the first foreshadowing to us of what God's going to do with the blood of Jesus. So he kills an animal, God kills an animal, and he takes the skin of an animal to cover over the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And so he teaches them in this moment, because of your sin, there must be death. And it was the very first sin, the very first connection, there has to be a blood sacrifice. Because of your sin, there must be death. The blood covers over your sins. And so that's what the Lord is teaching even from the very, very beginning. I love that. I think it's fascinating. You can imagine Adam and Eve being in that moment and having to recognize that their sin was costly. And it was a pattern that God was establishing. The pattern goes on to Cain and Abel. Um, we know, you know that story. If you don't know that story, it's a fascinating one of these two brothers, they get into it and, um, 
murder is involved. It's juicy Old Testament stuff. But anyways, uh, Cain and Abel, God was teaching them what was honor through sacrifice. And so, um, uh, yeah, so we want to, we want to look at the sacrifices that they brought. One brings vegetables. One brings, uh, like the first fruits of their land. I'm saying this is so wrong. (laughs) And one, uh, brings something that wasn't from the first fruits and God was not accept. He did not accept it. And the reason he didn't accept it is because it wasn't what he had pertained. He had laid out as the acceptable sacrifice. Why this matters is because God was developing a pattern to say, listen, there is a payment for sin and it looks like this. And because they didn't bring that, because um, he didn't bring that, then it wasn't accepted. That's right. Abraham and Isaac. Yeah. You, oh, yeah. You can talk about Abraham and Isaac. <laughs> so we see it again. Abraham and Isaac, the Lord is teaching. There has to be uh, a blood payment. And he tells him to take his only son up to the mountain and to sacrifice his only son. And then right before the knife comes down, God says, stop. There is a sacrifice provided by the Lord. And again, just doubling down on this idea that payment of sin comes through the blood, okay, through the blood of the lamb specifically, and then God teaching through his only son as it's going to come. So then continue into Moses, and we start talking about the Ten Commandments, which led us to Passover, which is, we're going to celebrate this uh, Friday. So let's talk about that. So God gives the Ten Commandments, and the Passover, God shows us that he's the one true God, and he alone is to be worshipped, and he shows again that man's sin must be atoned for or covered over in order to have relationship with God. So God gives instructions about the Passover and how they were to use the blood of the lamb to cover the doorpost, to, to take that blood and cover over the doorpost so that when the angel of destruction came, he would see the blood of the lamb and he would not bring destruction on the house, but would jump over that house because the blood had atoned for the sins, okay? So God's teaching his people there has to be a blood sacrifice. So why all this fuss about a blood sacrifice? Because in Leviticus 17.11, Leviticus 17, 11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Isn't that good? So God said it in the word. It's the blood that makes atonement for the souls. And it's interesting because although this wasn't confirmed by science until modern times, this statement from Leviticus has always been true. Blood actively maintains life by providing the vital functions for all the cells, tissues, organs. And so uh, the life of the whole body, it's sustained by the blood. So we understand the importance of the blood sacrifice. Now let's dig into the ceremonies that the Lord had set up in place in the Old Testament to help teach his people that when Jesus came, he was the one that was going to pay for the sins. So there's two ceremonies. There was um, Passover, which we're going to get into. But then the other ceremony was the Day of Atonement. It was called Yom Kippur. And the Day of Atonement, this was like the big day for the high priest. And this, this, uh, this ceremony blows my mind. It's just incredible what the Lord set up at this ceremony. So Yom Kippur, here's kind of how it works. This was the most important day for the high priest who was going to atone for his own sins. He was going to atone for the sins of the whole nation, and he was going to atone for the temple because it was in Israel's midst. So the temple was set up in three parts, and this is where I wish I had our, our slides to show you, but basically the temple had three parts. It had the outer court, it had the uh, most the, the holy place and then the most holy place. So there's three parts and three pieces of the puzzle. So it's set up in three different ways. Um, inside of the inner court or the holy place 
with the golden altar. It had the golden lampstands and the showbread. And in the most holy place, it had the Ark of the Covenant. And um, that's where the, uh, the covenant was with the big sticks coming out of it and the angels above it. So inside of the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's staff that had budded and then a golden pot of manna from the desert whenever Moses was with them, and then the, the Ten Commandments. Those things were inside of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had these two long poles that stu stood out from the ends of it so that they could carry it without touching it or getting too close. And then on top of it, it had two golden angels with wings that covered their faces um, to, over what was called the mercy seat, which is in the middle. All right, so... Um, they had to cover the angels on this uh, Ark of the Covenant. They had to cover their feet. They had to cover their face. And they had one set to fly, if you will. So between the angels was the Shekinah presence of God, and that was the mercy seat. So the priest was to enter the most holy place, this room, only one time a year on Yom Kippur to pay for the sins of the people. And it was a big deal. Like if he screwed this thing up, he could die. Um, so they even started putting a, a rope around his foot with a bell. So they could hear if he wasn't moving anymore, they could pull him out without anybody else yeah. dying. So like wrong clothes, you're dead. Wrong time, you're dead. Wrong sacrifice, you're dead. It was very specific what the Lord had said. And what's cool about it is that the most holy place was it was elevated. So the, the rest of the temple is here, but the most holy place is 15 steps higher. They had to ascend to the place of the Lord. So here's what happened on the Day of Atonement. Here you go. Here's my new slide. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> they all get it now. Okay. So on the Day of Atonement, one time a year, the whole nation gets together and the glory cloud comes down upon the temple and it begins to fill the place. Okay. So can you imagine how incredible that must have been? The whole nation assembles. The priest is normally in these really fancy uh, garments, like beautiful, amazing garments. And on this one day of the year, he takes off all of his fancy garments and he puts on an extremely humble and simple garment, which is just pure white linen. It's a humble garment to humble himself before the Lord. So then the nation presents to the priest two lambs or two goats, okay? So they gave him two goats and then two of them, uh, the priest would take lot, he would take like dice and he would cast lots to see which goat would be would represent Jehovah and which goat would represent the scapegoat, okay? This is so cool. And you know this term scapegoat and this is where it comes from. Okay, so you know Jesus was Jehovah. Jehovah, the one that got the dice for Jehovah would become a sin offering. They would slaughter Jehovah and the blood would go onto the mercy seat to cover the sins, okay? The scapegoat would be, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself because I love it. Okay, let me walk you through piece by piece. So the goat that has the lot for Jehovah will become a sin offering for the nation. Once the lots have been cast, the two goats, then the high priest, he takes his own personal bull and he sacrifices his bull. He takes his little censer with smoke and he takes it up into the most holy place. And he takes the blood of his own and cover, throws it at the Ark of the Covenant and he's atoning for his own personal sin. Then he leaves and he takes the, um, okay, so he takes his bull and he does his sacrifice. Then he pours the incense in the sacrifice. So it uh, smokes a ton and it creates a smoke screen be between himself and the presence of God. He then walks in the most holy place, waving a smoky censer around to create a smoke screen. And then the high priest takes the blood of the bull, dips his finger into it, and then flicks it 
uh, onto the Ark of the Covenant seven times to atone for his and his family's sin. Then he leaves the room. So the next step, the priest then goes to, and he takes the goat whose lot fell to Jehovah, and he slaughters that lamb, and he takes the blood once again into the most holy place. Again, he splatters the blood seven times on the Ark of the Covenant, and he leaves. Then the high priest goes back out, and he gets the second goat, which is the scapegoat. It's called Azazel, and it means scapegoat. The word Azazel, it means to uh, remove entirely. It's it's taking the sins of the nation and completely removing them away from them. So he lays his hands on the second goat and then he confesses the sins of the whole community onto that goat. He says this whole nation, all of our sins are on this goat. And then they have somebody lead the goat as far away into the wilderness as they can possibly get it. So, so the whole nation is understanding the blood of the lamb has just paid and covered for your sins and all of your sins have now been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Woo! <laughs> okay, so the role of the high priest was to represent the, the people to God to make atonement for their sins so God could be with his people, okay? So how do we see Jesus in the midst of all that? Okay, so let's do a quick recap. Everything that we just said, everything Grant just said, is coming from a lot of different scripture. But what I think is amazing about this is that God is so detail-oriented. So all of what is happening every year on Yom Kippur is God's idea. He instructed his priest to do it like that, and every single part of it has symbolism. So we even see what he just said about taking the goat all the way out as far as they could. It's the symbolism that that is how Jesus removes your sins. He takes them so far from you, they will never be seen from or heard of again. It's unbelievable. The smoke screen, that's even something that God was doing so that there, his glory would be clouded. One of my favorite things about the Ark of the Covenant, going back to my amazing drawing here, which is right here, the Holy of Holies, everything he was describing about the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant was this big box that had all these angels and then they went up like this, and then in between was what's called the mercy seat. And it's said that when the high priest was in there and doing this, the presence of God would come like some sort of, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but like some sort of electric field, like an energy field you could see sitting in that seat. Almost like when you use those balls that have the static and you touch and then it makes the electric arc. That Something like that is what they say was happening in between these two cherubim because our God is unbelievable. He's so fascinating and intricate. Anyways, so he does this whole thing and he sets this up to prove to his people, number one, I am your God. And number two, when Jesus comes, this is the message that we're seeing here. When Jesus comes and begins to fulfill all of these things, there will be no denying that he is the Messiah and he is the final sacrifice. So he is called the Lamb of God. Are you guys familiar with these scriptures that Jesus, one of his names is the Lamb of God. And the reason is because God had been saying for thousands of years, this is what you do with a lamb. And then now a lamb becomes flesh and goes through all of these same steps, which we're going to see in just a minute, to do the final sacrifice so that we can now be atoned forever. 
That means when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you get saved, your sins are gone from you as far as the goat is, the scapegoat. Your sins are gone for you as far as the east is from the west. In other words, they're just gone because Jesus did that for you. I mean, if that is you know impacting to you at all, just type amen or something. So, so, so Jesus fulfilled all three pieces. Jesus himself was the high priest to represent you to God. Jesus himself became the lamb who was slain. Jesus himself became the scapegoat to take your sins upon himself and remove it from you as far as the east is from the west. It's unbelievable. And the blood is so important. From the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation, your blood has been really, really important. In fact, I know a lot of people, you know, it's an uncomfortable thing to be like, oh, the blood of Jesus, whatever. But when we think about it from the perspective that from the first sin, God was speaking something about the blood till the last moment when Jesus's blood was spilled on the cross, thousands of years of history was declaring your freedom. It is truly incredible. It's unbelievable. Okay, so let's talk about Passover just a little bit. So you have the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which was a massive day in Israel for the people of God for reasons we just explained. And then the other major um, celebration that happened in Israel was Passover. And this is um, a really fascinating thing. You can read the first Passover account in Exodus 12 and 13. But basically what God was saying, and we're going to talk about the specifics of that, but what he was saying in the big picture of the Israelites' journey was that when you celebrate Passover, you were required, if you were physically able, you were required to go to the temple every year to celebrate Passover. God wanted his people to do this in community, and it was unbelievably symbolic. We're going to talk a little bit about it today, and then on Friday night, if you jump in with our Seder, I believe if you've never done this before, you will be blown away at the imagery and the intricateness of God. As we've been preparing it um, this week, I was telling Grant, you know, I, I love party planning and oh my gosh, I think God is the ultimate epic party planner. I mean, he planned what the plate was supposed to look like, what foods you're going to eat, the whole thing. It's an immersive experience yeah. unlike anything else. All right, so let's talk about Passover. So 1200 years of Passover tradition before Jesus became the final sacrifice. So In Exodus 12, we see this moment where the Israelites have been enslaved for something like 430 years before Pharaoh lets them go. And Moses, uh, God raises Moses up. He asks him to partner with him. God is asking Moses, partner with me to free the people. Moses is unbelievably reluctant, but he says, okay. Um, And so he goes back to Egypt. He asks Pharaoh, let me take the people to worship. Pharaoh says, no, I'm paraphrasing the story. Then God is like, well, let me show you who's really God. And then boom, 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 10 plagues happen. And it's crazy, right? And so between the ninth and 10th plague, something fascinating happens. God says to Moses, and he gives him these instructions of what to do. Here's the instruction. Go find a lamb on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. So uh, it's like, this is how intricate God is, right? He says, on this specific day, have all of Israel go and pick a male goat one year old. He has all these specifications about it. And then you keep the goat until the 14th day. And on the 14th day, goat is dead. When the goat dies, they all, they all were instructed at, um, I think it was three o'clock in the afternoon, All of Israel was supposed to take this goat they've been babying for four days and kill it. And so they kill the goat, and then God says... So let me jump in real quick, So because this is going to come up later. Um, The 10th day, they had to select the goat, and then they took it to be inspected by the priests at the temple. Well, I'm talking about the very first one, though. 
Okay. But yes, that became a part of it. Yes. So I'm talking about the very first Exodus. They slaughter the goats and then they're instructed by God to take the blood of that lamb and put it on their doorpost. So both sides right here and then the lintel, which is the top. If you look at what the Roman cross looked like when Jesus was crucified, it's not actually a cross like this. It's a cross like this. And what's crazy is that this painting of the blood of the lamb 1200 years before, and then like this becomes the, the imagery of how Jesus was put on the cross. To me, that's fascinating. So the Israelites are painting their doorpost with the blood of the lamb. And then they're instructed to put one of the bones, the shank bone of that lamb onto their plate as they eat that meal inside of their home. And that's what keeps the angel of death from coming over them. So this is the first Passover that happens. And then God says, this is a feast you need to do every year from here on out. It is important to me, this is God, I'm paraphrasing, it's important to God that we celebrate Passover so that we remember everything that he did, not only for the Israelites, but how that fit into the grander picture of Jesus becoming the Messiah. So when we get into the actual um, year that Jesus was was killed and crucified, we see that the Israelites have been taking the goat on the 10th day, like Grant just said, and then they, they have four days of inspection. They have to make sure it's blameless. They have to make sure its bones have never been broken, all of these different things. And the high priests look over the goat and they decide, is this acceptable or not? Side note, which we weren't going to talk about. One of the reasons why Jesus comes and flips the table when he comes in. Don't uh, get into it yet. Okay, it's fine. later. Okay, fine. No. Fine. Shh. Okay. This is why we don't preach together very notes. often. That she's supposed to fall. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyways, all right. So let's get talk away about the secrets. Let's talk more. Uh, 3 p.m. What happened? 3 p.m. All right. So they. So let's go into what's happening, how Passover fits in the bigger picture. Okay. So the 14th day, every Passover season, right? The goats, they're going to be slaughtered. I just want to say, just imagine for a moment that you, like, I, okay, we're, we're pastors, right? So we're called, if we were back in the Old Testament time, we'd be like Levite people. And this day is so gross. I just feel so thankful that Jesus did that and it's over because these priests would show up and all day long because there were so many thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Israel, they were cutting the necks of these goats and they were covered, covered in blood and blood. They say in, um, when we went to Israel, our guide was telling us the streets would run oh, red blood. because there was so much blood. Can you imagine everybody in Oklahoma City bringing their sacrificial goat like, like up to the Congress building and then it's just like animals. going down I-35? So disgusting. Anyways, thank you, Jesus, that that's done for us. So, um, okay. So they would at three o'clock, that's when they were instructed by God. This is crazy, guys. Three o'clock. This is when the goats are sacrificed. How much can I tell? Am I still have to save it all? You can just read my notes right there. Okay, let's see. <laughs> the shofar would blow. The whole community starts to chant uh, verses from Psalm 113 and 118. And then the slaughter of the thousands upon thousands of lambs ensued. I mean, bloodbath. People are like, oh, the Bible is so sweet. No, no, no. You have not read the Old Testament. It is gory. Um, okay, some excerpts of the chant, all right? This is like from Psalm 113 to 118. The cords of death entangled me. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his righteous ones. Open for me the gates of righteousness. The stone the builders rejected have become the capstone. In other words, they are prophesying mm. about what is going to happen. Every year for 1,200 Unbelievable. Years. God, I think in heaven's like, yes, Man. you don't even know. Okay, that's a really gross, whatever. Um, all right, and then it says in Grant's notes, then the lambs are hung. So this is what God had instructed. The lambs get hung by their forearms out like this. They basically get flayed out. The skin and uh, 
skinned and then carried by their owner to home to be uh, roasted and eaten. So they take their sacrifice to the priest in the temple. It gets sacrificed and then they bring the lamb now skinned home and they eat it as part of their Passover. You want to, I'll just let you go here because I can tell you're foaming up the bat. <laughs> All right. So, um, so 1,200 years. The meal, what was happening at the meal? They had to clear the house of leaven. This is symbolizing sin, and they had to remember the haste of uh, leaving Egypt. Then in the evening, the Seder meal, they remember the Israelites' captivity and exodus with the bitter herbs. They remember the haste of leaving Egypt quickly. They set a seat for Elijah, who was coming, the coming Savior, preparing for that. We're Elijah, get into that Elijah wasn't the coming Savior. They were setting him prophet, because yeah. he was supposed to come back before the yes. Messiah would come. Um, alert, and then they had four cups of wine, which symbolized, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. Remember the third one. I will redeem you. Okay. So all of this, we're going to cover in depth on Friday. And then they eat the lamb, which covered over their sins. Now the timeline of Jesus becoming the Passover lamb in person. Get ready. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, You've been waiting Saturday, all year for this moment right now. Every year. It's just so crazy, man. Okay, so here's how Jesus physically became the Passover lamb in his last week alive uh, on the earth. Well, before crucifixion. So Saturday, this is six days before his death. It's the 10th day of the first month. This is the day that you select the lamb and you inspect it for blemish. So many sheep are being selected by their families for the Passover, and they're brought into the homes before going up into Jerusalem and presented to the priests for inspection. Also remember, everybody that was able-bodied was instructed to go to Jerusalem. They all had so to leave their homes. On our up Wake Up With The Word on Friday, we talked about Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem right before he was crucified. And so it wasn't just Jesus entering Jerusalem. Just imagine the entire nation of Israel that's spread out in every surrounding city, Galilee, Bethany, everything. They all had to go to Jerusalem to fulfill this practice. So it was a surge in the city that was incredible. So imagine a million people are now looking at their lambs, picking their lamb, bringing them in. They bring it into the house to love on it like a tender little child for the next few days. On this day, where is Jesus? Jesus is at Lazarus's house with his family, with his disciples, and Mary walks in the door, and this is the day that she selects him and she anoints him with perfume that was worth a year's wages. And she dumps it all over him, preparing his body for burial. And I don't, I don't think she knew what she was doing. The disciples sure as heck did not know what she was doing because they got mad at her for wasting a year of, of finances. But she has selected the lamb, brought it into the house, and anointed it, getting it ready for burial. Do so you then, have goosebumps? Let us know. <laughs> okay, what happened on the fifth day? Oh, the I get to share day. that? I thought you were just going to take it home. No, go for it right there. Okay, where, where are we notes. at? Because I don't. I got lost. <laughs> I was being swept away in all the beauty of it. What are you on? Okay, um, I'm on Friday. Friday. Yeah, okay, next Hold page. on, sorry guys. <laughs> Rachel quit the sermon. Don't worry. I didn't quit. Right there, right there. Oh, right here? Know. Here. No, just do it. Okay. <laughs> sorry. I don't know these notes. All right. <laughs> so the next day, Friday... 
Okay, five days before his death, Jesus announces to his disciples, hey guys, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They're going to condemn him to death, and it will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he's going to be raised for life. So Jesus could not have been more clear in this moment. Guys, pay attention. I'm about to get killed. I'm about to become the Lamb of God who you've celebrated for 1,200 years through the Passover dinner. They didn't catch it. The next day, Monday morning, four days before his death, this is the official selection day. All of Israel is choosing their spotless lamb and they're um, taking it through the gates, the beautiful gate, up to the temple to present it to the priests. Matthew 21, 7 through 11. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on the cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna on the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Hosanna is often thought of as a declaration of praise similar to hallelujah, but it's actually a plea for salvation. So imagine that the whole city is asking Jesus to save them on the moment when they're taking their lambs to the temple to be selected to save and cover over their sins. It's incredible. So the Hebrew word yasha is deliver or save. Anna, which is beseech, combine that word together in English, which is Hosanna. So literally, Hosanna means I beg you to save us or please deliver us. And when this happened on the fourth day, this fulfilled the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay? So it's incredible. They're picking on the lambs. Jesus is right there in the middle of it going up there. So after the lambs are selected, they go to the priests at the temple and they are to be inspected and searched for any blemishes to be found faultless. And this takes several days. During these four days, Jesus is in the temple daily teaching. And this is when you see it in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, that they're trying to trick Jesus. They're daily trying to think of ways to trick Jesus and deceive him so that they can catch him saying the wrong thing. And then it says in Mark 12, 34, from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus then delivered some powerful parables that called out the Pharisees and their future judgment. Jesus was also declared faultless on John 18, 38, by Pilate saying, I find no basis or charge for you. So Jesus was inspected by the priest at the exact same moment that they're inspecting all of the lambs and found faultless. Amen. But that's not all. Wait, there's more. All right, three days before his death, he has been inspected at the temple. And then this is where I was trying to get ahead of myself earlier. This is where Jesus comes in and he cleanses the temple. So one thing we didn't mention earlier in the um, traditional Passover process that God had laid out for the Israelites is that you were required to get rid of all of the leaven in your home. Leaven, or what we would call yeast, 
is a parallel. It's like a metaphor for your sin. So in the process of preparing for Passover, they would go to great lengths to get rid of all the yeast that was in their house. Now, remember, this is basically like getting rid of flour, right? I mean, this is a powder substance that they were scouring, but it was the action. It was like a prophetic act where they were reminding themselves of how to search for what is not supposed to be there. It's a parallel to what we are supposed to do in searching our own hearts and getting rid of the sin that we are letting be in our hearts. So Jesus comes in and he goes into the temple and he begins to clean the temple. And what's crazy here is that he's doing this at the day in the process of preparing for Passover that everybody else is ridding their homes of the sin, the metaphorical sin that shouldn't be there. One of the things I think is amazing that Jesus was doing in overturning the tables was this. The, we were talking about the goats being inspected, right? And, and they would look and say, is this goat worthy to be sacrificed, worthy to be your Passover sacrifice? And the truth of the matter is sometimes they weren't. And so some of these tables that were set up, I'll go back to my amazing drawing here, okay? <laughs> It's so good, guys. I should it's be... the only slide we have. Today. I should do one of those like um, online doodle classes that people are doing for kids. I'm just kidding. Anyways, I drew it like this because can you see there's this outer layer right here and these merchants would set up on the rim and what they would do is they would have tables of goats that were blemish-free, that had been inspected and you could swap yours. You could pay for it. They had other... like There's bird sacrifices and stuff like that. That's what a lot of the people were doing. They also had the money changer tables. You guys have seen this in that story um, that we read on Friday. And so the money changers, what they're doing is you've got people coming into Israel from other places, right? And they have currency from their hometown. And so they're all, all Jews are required to come to Jerusalem. So they had to pay the temple tax, but it had to be paid in the right currency. So the money changers would do that. They would swap what you're bringing from you know, neighboring countries and they'd put it into their currency and they would make a change. But they were being corrupt because they were charging the people more than they were making money basically off of these interactions. Jesus was not okay with that because they are basically charging a premium to do what God has commanded you to do. This is really a bad deal in God's eyes. This is a side note, but it's a big deal in God's eyes when we manipulate people and, and you know use what they need to do for their own salvation, for their own right standing with God, and we hold that against them. Okay, so he goes in and he cleanses the temple, um, and he also preaches powerfully against sin in that moment, and it's unbelievable. All right, so two days before his death, Jesus is, uh, this is the day before the Last Supper, Judas leaves the house and he heads to Jerusalem to go talk to the priest to turn Jesus in. And it was 120 denarii, which was the equivalent of four months of wages. So can you imagine that? He gave up the Savior of the world for four months of wages, which is close to what the government is giving to you for free <laughs> at the moment if you're... Uh, we won't get into any of that, but four months, that's it. He gave up Jesus for four months. And um, incidentally, another savior of the world, um, in a sense, years before, Joseph, he was sold into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. Zechariah eleven twelve prophesied that um, Jesus would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Okay, I think that's right. Check me on that. I may have written my notes, maybe wrong. No, I believe that's right. One day before, what happened? Okay, one day before. So this is the Last Supper. Um, have you guys seen that meme going around where they made it into a Zoom? It was like Jesus at the table and then all the disciples were. Anyways, I digress. Okay, um, one day before his death, the Last Supper, Jesus recognizes his appointed time has come. He gets it. He knows he's very, very close to death. 
Um, and so Matthew 26, 18, Jesus says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Uh, these are the directions Jesus told his disciples to tell the benefactor in the upper room. Um, and then it says at the last supper, uh, which was actually a day before the national Seder, Jesus sits down with his people. Um, and then he, he does, I'm going to tell you what he does in a second, but I want to make a note about something. There's a lot of debate about whether the Last Supper was actually a Passover Seder or not. There's really legitimate arguments on both sides, but I want you to picture it like this. When it's Christmas Eve and you know Christmas is tomorrow, everything around the atmosphere is Christmas. So if somebody said, ho, 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 you immediately know what they're talking about because it's the atmosphere of Christmas. That's what it was like in the upper room that night. It was the atmosphere of Passover. So whether they were doing their traditional Seder, the one that they are required by law to do or not, doesn't really change the implication of what we're about to say because Jesus was in the atmosphere of Passover. Everybody was thinking about it. They've been spending all week preparing for it. So when Jesus does what he's about to do, it was something that spoke directly to all of the disciples' hearts. Here's what he does. In the Passover, you're required to have this ceremonial matzah basket. And basically it's three pieces of matzah that are set apart from what everybody else is gonna eat. The middle piece is instructed to be wrapped in a white cloth and then it's broken. It's a part of the Passover and it's broken. There's no instruction given in Exodus of why you break it. They don't lift it in the air and break it for Ooh. any reason. They're just told to break it. So some people had suggested maybe this represents Isaac being sacrificed. You know, maybe the three are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the middle one is Isaac who had to, you know, be almost sacrificed, whatever. But they don't really truly know until this moment. Jesus takes this piece of masa in his hands. He takes the bread, he raises it up and he breaks it. Everybody knows in that moment what he's symbolizing, but then he goes on to speak the revelatory words. This is my body broken for you. Now all of a sudden he's pointing to a 1200 so year good. tradition where this bread was broken. Jesus also calls himself the what of life. Do you guys remember the bread of life? Yeah. I mean, the man so loves good. carbs. And so he gets there and he breaks this matzah and he makes this declarative statement saying, this is like my body broken for you. Take and eat it. And what he's doing here is beginning to show that we are going to become one. Within a matter of hours, I am going to fulfill every single thing that's needed. Yeah. And then he takes the cup. There's four cups. There's four cups at a Passover meal. Yeah, so this is a little bit debated just for just for clarity. There's a little bit of debate about whether he picked up this specific cup. He totally cup. did this. I know it. <laughs> that's what we think. But there, you know, anyways, if you want to know the debate, you can ask me later. I'll share it with you. We just want to say... We want to be honest. No, it's legitimate. People need to know. <laughs> what happened with the cups? Okay, so he picks up the cup and then he pours it out one for my homies. No, I'm just kidding. So he picks up the cup and he says... Which cup did he pick up? He picks up the third cup. The third cup? The cup that is, I will redeem you. Oh! This is a promise that God gave to Moses in Exodus 12 or 13. And so he picks up this cup, the cup of redemption. And he says, this is my blood poured out for you. And what he's doing is establishing, and he goes on to say he's establishing a new covenant. And what he's doing in this moment is saying, when you partake of my body, when you partake of my blood, you are communing with me. He begin, This is where we get communion from. It's this moment. It's the continuation of the Passover. And it's so fascinating because he makes the juice, the wine that they were drinking, he parallels it to his blood. Why is this important? We've just spent the last 30 minutes explaining to you how important blood 
blood is to God. And now God himself, Jesus is saying, this is my blood poured out for you. Unbelievable. Amazing. Okay. So after this meal, they go up to the Mount of Olives at midnight and um, you guys kind of know that story probably, but basically just know that everything that happened that night was illegal uh, as far as how they treated Jesus and, and with what the law said that they're allowed to do. They're not he, allowed to arrest people. He's interrogated, after, yeah. he's spit on, he's beat up, he's thrown in the pit um, at the high priest's house, which... We were there. We don't have a pit in our house. Thank God. So you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but back then they had a prison in the high priest's house. We saw it. It was crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. It's like you um, can't even get out. You had to go down by a ladder. Which was prophesied in Psalms 88, talking about Jesus in the pit. Anyway, crazy night. So then Friday, the day... Here we go. Here's what happens. Early in the morning, Jesus is taken to Herod's palace. This is the 14th day of the first month. So he's taken to Herod's palace where Pilate is living in Jerusalem. Pilate comes out to the Praetorian where he finds no issues with Jesus and he sends him back to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas won't mess with Jesus. He sends him back to Pilate. So Pilate is pressured by the Jews. So he thinks if he scourges Jesus, that that'll be good enough and they're going to let it move on. Jesus is sent to Antonio Fortress, which we've been to. Amazing place. Jesus is scourged with the whip with nine strips of leather with bone fragments, metal attachments at the ends. <sighs> After this, the guards beat Jesus more and they mock him. And then they play this game called the King's Game. Do you remember this? Yes. The King's Game where they make a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. So the King's Game was this disgusting game that the Roman uh, soldiers used to play. They would... Gather at the at the uh, fortress. They played it with all prisoners, not just Jesus. Right, yeah, yeah. They, this is like a regular thing that they did. And they would gather in the courtyard of the fortress, all of the different uh, soldiers, and they would grab somebody who was in... in actually, they would grab sometimes one him. of their own. Yeah, they anyway, liked this game. So the terrible. game is to make somebody a king... And they would make a crown of thorns. This was like a regular thing that they did is make a crown of thorns and put them in this one special seat that was like the king's throne. And they would put garments of purple on the person and pretend like they were the king. And then it was like this huge human-sized chess game where they had a sword on the ground in front of the king and they would roll dice and they would move around until the first person to grab the sword could kill the king. This is disgusting. Mm -hmm. And on the floor today at Antonio Fortress, you can actually see where they have carved the the, the game like game board into the stone, where the blood would roll through this area. So they choose Jesus to put him as the king, and they make this crown of thorns and they shove it on his head. And they, that's why they put the purple on him um, to play the king's game. So they do this terrible thing. Um, and then Jesus is sent to Pilate once again and shown before the Jews. They want Jesus dead and they begin to chant for him to be crucified. Pilate asks who they want to be released, Barabbas the murderer or Jesus Christ. They all chant Barabbas and Jesus is given a cross and he's marched to Skull Mountain. Okay. Now Jesus is put on the cross in the same position. What position did the lambs get uh, slaughtered? <laughs> forearms. By their forearms. So they would pull their arms out like this, and they would hook them up by their forearms, and Jesus is put on the cross in the same position as the Passover lambs are hung by their forearms, skinned, blood flowing, but not a broken bone. Jesus is placed on the cross at 9 a.m. on this day. He suffers for six hours. Meanwhile, while he's suffering, 
the whole city is a buzz getting ready for Passover at the temple, which is very close to Jesus on the cross. And the general consensus is that Jesus could hear everything happening at the temple. So at noon, the sky goes black, lights go out, and, and the Lord is symbolizing punishment. It only happened one other time throughout the Bible. In if Exodus, I, if I remember right, in the ten plagues, the sky goes black as punishment. So during that time on the cross, God poured <clears throat> out all His harsh, rough wrath and anger on Jesus for the sins of the whole world. Jesus was taking the punishments of our sins. He became the Passover Lamb that atoned for our sins and brought us near to God. So Jesus cries out, "Why have you forsaken me?" God turns His back on Jesus at three p.m. You remember what happens at three p.m. All the lambs. At 3 p.m., the temple shofar blows. All of the Jews rush into the temple, and they bring their lambs to be slaughtered at 3 p.m. Taking the blood of the lamb, they pour it on the altar to have their own sins atoned for. The lambs are then hung by their forearms and skinned. And while the whole city is chanting Psalms 113 through 118, Again, the cords of death entangled me. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his righteous ones. Open for me the gates of righteousness. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. All at the exact same moment that Jesus is hanging on the cross after the lights have just come back on, all within earshot of Jesus on the cross. It's in this hour, three o'clock, that Jesus says, It is finished! And he surrenders his life as a self-sacrifice, the perfect provision for our sins. Amen. And in that moment, there's a tremendous shaking. There's an earthquake. The rocks literally split in two. Dead people come back to life. They come out of their graves and they start walking and talking again. And the giant curtain that was in the temple that separated the most holy place, 60 feet tall, six inches thick, it is torn from the top to the bottom so that God's presence can now be with his people. Amen. So, Jesus became truly in every sense, in the physical manner, all of the prophecies, all of the patterns, everything that the Lord put in place for 1,200 years plus, Jesus physically became those to become your and my Passover lamb to cover over, atone for our sins, to represent us before God as the high priest, to take our sins like the scapegoat as far from the east is from the west. Amen. Amen. It makes me think of that moment when Jesus is in the garden and he knows what he's about to go through. He knows all these, he's where he's at in this process. He's one day away from becoming the Passover lamb and he's sweating blood. He invites his closest friends to pray with him and they can't, they can't hang with him. They fall asleep and he's agonizing so much that he actually begins to sweat blood. And what is his prayer? If there's any other way, God, Please take this cup from me. If there's any other way that I can fulfill everything we've been working towards, please reveal it to me now. And then in the moment of surrender that's so incredible, he just says, I'll do it. I'll do it. This is Ephesians tells us that Jesus was selected to be the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. 
That means before the earth was even created, before there was a potential for sin, Jesus had volunteered to go. And now in his final moments, the intensity is so in his humanity. I mean, just imagine he was human, fully human. And he's having this moment of saying, I have to fulfill every detail of this law for you. Because what does the Bible say? It was the joy set before him that you are the joy that he had in mind. There's one other thing I want to mention as we kind of wrap up for this morning, and it's this. In Israel, there was this concept, a one for all. And I believe I've talked about this before, but it was this idea that one person could speak and become on behalf of the whole nation. And so one thing that we see, like with King David, when he goes to um, defeat Goliath, he goes as Israel and Goliath came as the, the entire Philistine nation. It was this one person for all mentality. When David shows up on the battlefield to speak and, and fight on behalf of Israel, it was a future foretelling of what Jesus would do for you and I. So when we say that he took our sins, he actually took your sins, your past, your current, and your future sins. He was the one for all of mankind. He went to the cross. He fulfilled every requirement that had to be done so that he could be there and say... I am you. I am dying, not just for you, but as you, so that you can be free. Where I feel like this applies to us, and the big question is, what do we do with all of this information? I mean, is this just historical intrigue, or is this something we can apply to our lives? And here's the reality. You have been put into a new covenant. You have been created by God to step into something new that is not a part of the old religious system. We are no longer obligated to pay for our sins through all of these different efforts. We are obligated to accept and receive what Jesus has done on our behalf. So for anybody that's watching this that has not made that decision, today could not be a better day for you to say, Jesus, mm. I acknowledge that you are the son of God. I see that you have come through all of these steps for me so that I can know you and be made right. We're going to see on Friday at the Passover that these four cups that we're going to drink together, that it then goes on. The fourth cup is that I will take you as my own, that everything that Jesus did was to take you as his own people to finalize that so there could be no question anymore that you have been adopted by God as his direct line son or daughter first generation not some you know this God is my grandpa a hundred thousand years ago no right now God is your dad Jesus is your high priest he is your friend he is your savior mm. So I feel like the only way to really respond is to take a moment in our heart and just ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to take away from all of this information? What do you want to do in my life today that can help me position myself to be more in right standing with you in my understanding, in my awareness? Because now through the blood of Jesus, we don't have to go through actions, right? We don't have to just show up to church every Sunday to be in right standing. Now it's about our understanding of our alignment with him. That's the beauty of the new covenant. So we're going to take a moment and we're just going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you in your home. I just encourage you, stir up the presence of God inside of you. What was phenomenal about that curtain ripping was that now it wasn't just the high priest that got to be blown away by the bigness of God. Now we don't mm. have to put smoke in our way so that we you know, can, can experience the presence of God without dying just from his overwhelming goodness. Now he gets to come and touch our heart right now. 
right where you are, laying in your bed, sitting on your couch, in your pajamas, wherever you are watching this, you get to experience that presence of God because the veil was torn and not from the bottom up because of something we could do, but from the top down because only God could be the one to say, I not only did this for you, but I want you in my presence. Amen. So we're just going to take a moment. Don't click off yet. Just quiet your heart. Holy Spirit, we just invite you right now into our hearts. Lord, we thank you that for those of us that have said yes to you, that we are now your temple, that you dwell within us. And Lord, I'm asking for every person watching this, that they would be overwhelmed right now with the atmosphere of heaven in their home, in their car, wherever they are. Lord, we just ask that you would overwhelm us with your presence. And Father, we sit and we wait and we listen to your precious Holy Spirit, what do you want to say for us this morning? How do you want to speak to our heart? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. So, um, gosh, I love it. Thankful for the Lord. Thankful for this crazy story. Hopefully we did it a little bit of justice. And there's so many other pieces to the puzzle. That yeah, there's not enough time just, to share. Well, do you remember um, when the earthquake happened and the temple ripped? Didn't the altar break as well? Do you remember? Yeah. The sacrifice, the place where they do the I can't the remember altar. if I'm remembering Narnia. No, he just... <laughs> <laughs> or if it actually happened. But if... If that's true, no, what's true. fascinating <laughs> is imagine that three o'clock, they're all rushing in, having their lamb slaughtered. Wait, and before that, let me say, when the sky went dark, okay, so you have the Pharisees who their whole job is to know the scriptures. So they would have known that the sky going dark was a sign of God's judgment. That's what the plague was about. I mean, this is Passover season where they're going through and recalling every one of the 10 plagues. So when the lights go out, every Pharisee there that is in every Levite priest who's in charge of doing the sacrifice instantly would have known we are now under God's judgment. They might not have understood why, but they knew. And that's what I think is amazing that in that moment, every person who was devoted to following God, who was like a priest, a Levite, you know, all these people who had spent their life studying this, they knew there was something happening. There was a change happening. And then the earth begins to shake and all that. Okay, keep going. So the altar, the whole nation is trying to bring their sacrifice to the altar to have the blood of that lamb pay for their own sins and all of a sudden the altar is broken and they're physically not able to provide for their own sacrifice anymore because God in that moment replaced that system with himself with Jesus on the cross which is incredible and then just think about the the temple curtain protecting the most holy place six inches thick like if you try to rip a rope that's even like a half inch thick it's impossible six inches of the woven fine, you know, like the most mm-hmm. finely woven fabric. I think it would take. The top to the I bottom. think the Leviticus it took, says it says like three or four hundred people to carry yeah. the curtain to get it into place. It was unbelievable. It's not something any man could do. How much more clear could God get that like 
bam, this is it. Like no more. That system is done. God's out of the box. You cannot provide for your own covering anymore. Jesus is the one. His sin, his blood paid for your sins. End of story. It's incredible. I love it. Yes. Well, thank you guys for watching and tuning in this morning. I know it's a little bit longer. It would have been this long if you were there in person, just so you know. So um, I'm glad that you were able to watch with us and be inspired by this incredible God that we serve. Next week is Easter Sunday, and I want to encourage you guys, invite somebody to tune in with you. You can start like a watch party on Facebook. You can send them the link on YouTube, whatever. Um, but we're going to be celebrating Easter, and uh, it's going to be awesome. We're actually going to be talking a little bit more about some of this kind of stuff that we didn't get to today and talking about just what the resurrection really means for us. I think it's going to be really intriguing to you. So um, just know we're praying for you. We are praying that God is going to move on behalf of our nation. Um, we're praying that he will extend his mercy uh, to our world so that this pandemic will go. I think I've heard a couple prophecies that will go as swiftly as it came. And uh, that's what we're really contending for. We'd love for you to pray for us.